Hello, welcome to another Book Shambles author extra. Remember, we are doing the London launch of The Happy Brain by Dean Burnett on May 4th at King's Place. A live Book Shambles with Dean chatting to Robin Ince. Tickets at CosmicShambles.com and the King's Place website. And don't forget our Albert Hall events as well. Space Shambles on June 15 with Robin and Chris Hadfield and Festival of Spoken Nerd, Jim Al-Khalili, Apollo 9 astronaut Rusty Schweikart. And then the two Book Shambles live events there as well, June 4 and June 11. Guests include Lucy Green and Adam Buxton. And as always, thanks to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become one of them and get amongst all the great rewards that are available, uh, exclusive bonus episodes, extended episodes, book bags, all that sort of stuff, it's patreon.com slash bookshambles. And now on to today's episode. And you can move the book oh, around great. and move with it. It's in registration, so... So you can, yeah, the augment... That's fantastic. Because I went to the, an art gallery. Where was it the other day? It was in, uh, in Toronto. They've got uh, an exhibition now where uh, you can... They've got about three... Uh, they're not old masters, but they're pretty good. You know, they're, they're reasonable. <laughs> they're not quite... And, uh, and you can do that with your phone. You can get, you know, that suddenly the, the, the painting becomes three-dimensional yeah. and a certain oh, nice. amount of activity. I'll tell you what, then. Let's start talking about that. <clears throat> Sure. Okay, sure. Uh, I'm with uh, Kelly and Zach, who've written a, a book called uh, Soonish, and it is uh, at the the hopeful possible expectations of human beings. Almost most of them, within if you've got four decades, hopefully, if they're going to happen, they 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 will happen in your lifetime. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, of course, maybe. <laughs> but but what I mean is, the, the, these these are most of them. Soonish. That is, you, 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 that's the hope. An augmented reality. That's the uh, one of the later chapters, and that is something which I want to know. First of all, how do you feel about that? Because my initial reaction, like you mentioned in the in in the chapter about the fact that Google Glass, for instance, the speed in which people went. I saw some with Google Glass, and I wanted to punch them directly in the <laughs> face. And that, why do you think? What, what was it about Google Glass that didn't? work for people that made people go there's something about this I think it was a combination of the fact that one they looked a little bit pretentious because they were just sort of pretentious looking snooty glasses uh, and then two I think it was you know people don't necessarily know what those glasses are doing and some of the future of augmented reality includes being able to recognize someone's face and pop information up over their head so you know a lot about someone without having acquired that information through talking to them. And so I think it, one, made people think you look like a jerk, and two, made people unsure about what those glasses were doing with their own privacy. Like, is that glass scanning my face and pulling information off Facebook? And I think that made people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, is that one of the big issues of, uh, of all of, uh, pretty much every technology that you talk about, every possibility, is the, uh, the access. Because the moment someone can afford to have the ability to look at you, and have information, then they have this advantage. And are we, are we really going to see a democracy of technology suddenly, after all this time, a democracy of technology? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think what's going to be creepy is it's weird to us, but to our grandkids, say it won't be. I think that'll be totally normal. Because, I mean, Facebook weirds out my parents, the amount of personal data we share willingly. Like, like we have this sort of Orwellian concern that it's going to be taken from us, but I think we're going to share it all willingly. You're going to get, like, a brain scan and a hormone profile, and you'll be like, look, Internet, this is what I got. Or your grandkids will. We won't. We'll think it's weird, but uh, 
but in a couple of generations, I think culture will just adapt and privacy will diminish a little further. But is so I wonder because today when we're recording this, there's been a big thing about Cambridge Analytica and the fact that Facebook are now removing them uh, from being able to use Facebook because they believe that they managed to legally get hold of information, but then. Mm-hmm. illegally mm-hmm. use it and that to me is that that is the worry that hangs over most of these uh information-based advances yeah so that it makes me a little nervous so like, i think facebook also did some experiment to look to see if you could make people sad or happy by manipulating the posts that they see uh, and i think that they did that they maybe had some approval but not all the pr- approvals i'm forgetting the details and mm-hmm. so i i think it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen because they do things, people get angry, and for some things, people forgive and they get back on Facebook and they just post about how they're never going to go on Facebook again, but a month later, they're back. Uh, but there might be some line which gets crossed by Facebook and then everybody dumps Facebook. Uh, but it's hard to know if that line exists. I think it probably doesn't, but we'll see, I guess. Well, let's start then with uh, always everyone's favorite thing, especially for my generation. I was three months old when we landed on the moon um space exploration these are times where after i I would really i suppose over the from the late 70s onwards there hasn't been the level of excitement that there is again now pretty much since the space race and human beings landing on the moon so what are your in this book you explore a few things What, what is your next most hoped for advance in terms of space exploration um, well, it depends on how crazy you want to get, but the, the probable one is uh, inexpensive, reusable uh, space rockets. Uh, and I can go into the detail of that. Yeah, yeah, too. <clears throat> sure. Okay, so, like, you know, the way we like to say it is if you're taking a plane from, say, London to Los Angeles, uh, it's not that expensive. But suppose the way you got to Los Angeles is when you were over it, you jumped out in a parachute and the plane crashed into the ocean. Presumably everybody else got a parachute too, but you know, so that ticket would be pretty expensive because the 747 or whatever that you're in costs $100 million. It's more like $500 million, I think. So that's essentially what we do with rockets, right? You, you ride the rocket up. Um, if you look at a rocket sitting on the pad, it's, if it's very efficient, it's about 3.5% stuff going to space. The rest is, most of it's propellant. It's stuff you're going to explode on the way up. Um, and then there's just the machine of the rocket, and about 3.5% goes up. Um, so the, uh, but the economics are interesting because the propellant, which, as we said, is most of the thing you're looking at, is relatively cheap. The propellant is under a million dollars, whereas the, the ultra-cheap Elon Musk SpaceX launches, you know, 70 million bucks, something like that. Um, so, so if you could get to where you can recover the, the booster, the rocket from space, you could theoretically get the, the price down to, you know, cost of refurbishment, staff, and fuel, which might be, you know, Cut down. I think. I think SpaceX said thirty percent off the cost. Elon Musk said ninety percent. So <laughs> you need your Elon Musk conversion factor. Yes. Yeah. It depends, of course, which simulated universe we're in. Of Elon Musk. Says, uh, <laughs> yes. 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 That's I mean, a quick his, side. So no, go on. Sorry. History tells us that this refurbishing thing doesn't always necessarily work. So the U.S. did the space shuttle, and that ended mm-hmm. up being very expensive to refurbish and get it back up there. So expensive that it was prohibitively expensive, and they shut that program down. Yeah. But presumably, Elon uh, is doing a better job, and it's gonna. It's going to work out. That I found very interesting in your book was the fact that the space shuttle uh, was so expensive, that it was more expensive. Now, what was it in, in that? So it's not merely the fact that what it's attached to as it goes up, the course, again, you're still losing all of that. You're losing what, what has been holding the propellant in that to actually get us into space. What else was it in terms of the, the refurbishment? And well, 
I, I think you just need to like recheck every single screw and every single washer and just generally make sure that nothing got broken uh, either by the like very you know the dramatic shaking or whatever as you go up into space and the fact that it's experienced incredible temperature changes as it is up in space where it's very cold and then coming through our atmosphere where it's very hot uh and so it, that could break a lot of things so everything sort of needs to be looked at very carefully and double checked and that takes a lot of people and a lot of time uh and then there's a great book by a guy named rand simberg uh, called safe is not an option you're familiar with this yeah well no it's, oh, it, it was one of the ones that i noted down because i thought that is yeah safe is not an option overcoming the futile obsession with getting everyone back alive that is killing our expansion into space that is one of the best subtitles i've read for a long time it's the greatest subtitle ever. so his argument is essentially that one often by including extra safety features you actually make it more dangerous by complicating it um but two um i think part of the problem is and we're we're totally in favor of large public sector funding of science but part of the problem is then if something goes wrong you're beholden to congress um instead of you know a lawsuit or whatever it is uh and so our understanding was that the level of care taken for getting everyone back alive was 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 extreme to the point where it made the project no longer worth it. Um, so I, I don't know what the ethical thing to do is in that case, but um, but uh, I, I think that would be that's a good book if you want to understand what went wrong with the space shuttle uh, program. They are t- the, some of the things. I mean, it's an interesting thing as well where the politics and the kind of the mm-hmm. the alpha thinking that gets in there. That when when you find out, you know, with Challenger, there were a lot of people with doubts, and it was like, a, oh, you're scared to go up. You say, oh, okay. So this push that when it becomes that's a danger of business as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where you do something dangerous because you think, oh no, otherwise we might lose our funding. Right. Yeah. And that seems to hang over the book to some extent, very lightly. <laughs> but there are beautiful ideas in here. But then there is that point where you go, we still have to deal with uh, human deviousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you bring up on a few different uh, uh, ideas of, of future possibilities the dangers in terms of things like terrorism, for instance, when you're talking about the idea of the, uh, you know, the, the space lift, the space elevator, the, these kind of, that, that's one of the big issues is, can you have a private company that owns something like that? Can you even have a single nation that has control over that? Yeah. 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 So it's interesting in researching it, a lot of the researchers seem to be in favor of if we built a spe- space elevator, we should have it be um, international cooperation. And it, what was interesting is it wasn't exactly clear why to me, but my, my sense was it was just fear. Like if, if only, say, the U.S. or only the China, or only China has a space elevator, it's like the most drastic military advantage in history. It's like having a mountain upon which you look down on everyone else. Um, so one, one idea that was proposed during the Cold War was what was called a rod from God. And the idea is you have something like a 20-ton tung- tungsten rod, a very dense piece of metal. You drop it toward the Earth, and the, the kinetic energy is as if you dropped a nuclear weapon. Um, but it's actually, uh, we argue it's worse, because a nuclear weapon is a sort of a ticklish mechanism, so you could, you could smack it with something and break it, right? Like a, a fission bomb has to work just right to go off, um, whereas a hunk of metal... There's not a lot you can do. Uh, you know, it's just it's just Newtonian. So I mean, you could you could throw nuclear missiles at it, but now you're detonating missiles mm-hmm. in the atmosphere in order to stop one from hitting the ground. And, and and that's another thing that's scary about asteroid mining is you suddenly have the ability to wrangle asteroids and move them around to different places, and you could also be flinging them towards Earth. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to know what to do about that because the promise of asteroid mining is that we could be you know building things out in space. We could have space colonies. We could use those colonies to go out and explore the rest of our solar system. But do you trust everybody who's moving these giant things around in space to not be crazy? And at the moment, the people who go to space have been, you know, vetted through multiple programs, past mm-hmm. psychology tests, and hopefully are all fairly stable. Although you still get stories about astronauts who ride across the country in diapers to kill their partner who cheated on them. Was that one the time, story? One time. Once, once. Yeah. But anyway, so you hope that the people in space... Uh, 
you know, aren't the kind of people who would fling asteroids at the Earth. But could be Omnicore, Robocop's Omnicore, which is uh, <laughs> if you've seen the original Robocop yeah. from '87, where the predictions in that are, you know, we've gone into places where people didn't believe there would be profit: hospitals, prisons, and you go, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Paul Verhoeven. The um, this is in in terms of your hope. I mean, this is. I think it is a very inspiring book, and I, th- I love the mixture of the fact that the, the cartoons and then there's a, a lot of information uh, and also a lightness of touch. Uh, but in terms of the hopes for, because this, I think the next generation, when we were being brought up, we were just kind of, you're all going to live on the moon. Mm-hmm. And obviously, uh, there now seems to be, amongst the size of the dreams, there is also a certain level of pragmatism. Mm-hmm. Certainly this book has, has pragmatism. When it's, uh, what do you think has changed in terms of, I suppose young people, kids' vision of the future. Do you want to take that one? I, I could take a shot at it. I mean, space in particular, the way I look at it is we're living in like an alternate history where somehow humans walked on the moon in 1960s. You know, so I, I think if you look at the unlikely series of events that lead to, um, you know, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong ending up on the moon, it's insane. Like, it, at some point it comes down to Kennedy sort of sitting around and being like, what can we do this kind of crazy? You know, I mean, it, it, it could have easily not happened. I mean, I, I think it, in, in 67 it would have been like 4.5% of the U.S. budget, like a, a, an amount I think no one is, is cool with, I mean, except maybe us. But, uh, but so... I think it was just kind of a lucky thing that happened in, in, in that period of time. And I, and I think that was very inspirational. And nothing quite so dramatic has happened since then. Um, so I, I, I almost want to say the way to look at it is that the 60s were weird. It now is normal, a uh, normal level of, uh, of lack of inspiration. I mean, it could be also just real quick is, is like it might be 150 years ago, like you pull up a map and there are black regions. You don't know what's there anymore. And, and those are fairly accessible. You get together a couple of rich people to give you some money to go see what's in Antarctica and it can be done. I don't know that there's an equivalent anymore. But, but on the other hand, I do feel like, you know, this generation, younger generations are, are seeing that, like, you know, there's startups who are doing mm-hmm. things that, you know, we thought couldn't be done before. And you've got Elon Musk mm-hmm. uh, and Blue Origin, Jeff, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin. You've got people who are like, well, the government's not doing it well. So we're going to do it instead. And so I, I think that this generation does feel a little bit inspired by people who are doing it on their own. And so now there's new ways to accomplish these amazing things. So I'm optimistic that they'll that they'll get some of this stuff done. But some of these problems, the problems we lay out in the book have issues that may to some extent be insurmountable for generations to come, like the space elevator. It's not clear that we have any compound that we know of yet that could be used to make that cable. Uh, and I don't know how we're going to find it. But I don't know. So I, I think there's some inspiration yeah. in this. Yeah, so I think there's inspiration. I think, it's, but they seem to be slightly more pragmatic in a good way. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that we we were kind of the, the two generations for us was amazing stories, you know, which was science fiction <laughs> today, science fact tomorrow, you know. This, right. And they were saying there's going to be a huge floating plate. You're going to be living in this dome, and then the moment that doesn't happen, people feel sensible. It's a bit like you know, if you vote for someone who's on the left. The moment they haven't cured everything within four years, it's a failure. Every time you vote for someone on the right and they spend every single day screwing you, you go, well, <laughs> and you go, hang on a minute, this is... And that's, and that's part of why we wanted to mention all the like negatives and all of the challenges right. in this book, because we want people to be excited about the future, but reasonable about what it's going mm-hmm. to take to get there. And that's one problem we have with some of the science reporting we see, especially with things like cancer. You know, people are like, oh, we found this breakthrough. Probably cancer next week is gone. And right. so and and then, you know, you read that and cancer still persists decades later. And then people are disappointed and they wonder why we're spending all this money mm-hmm. on cancer research when we're not getting any breakthroughs. And so I think pragmatism is really important for just the way that people view science in general uh, and probably also when you're starting a company. 
I think that medicine is one that's an area that I find at the moment. I do find it inspiring because it does say I, I talk to forget his name now, a guy who's been at the forefront of, of, of nanomedicine and just some of the uh, the things that have been created to, just to remove, for instance, uh, blockages, uh, aneurysms, and where it does almost feel it feels too much like the film Fantastic Voyage. It feels too much like they have placed Raquel Welsh and Donald Pleasance in your system and they're just <laughs> hacking away and there is some kind of sentient creature that has actually noticed this blockage and aneurysm. But this, that in, 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 in your book, I think these hopes, of medical hopes, are very inspiring. Yeah, yeah. We, we found a lot to be inspired about. You know, so like immunotherapy for cancer now, I think, is very exciting. So you essentially teach your immune system to go after this cancer that has somehow managed to evade it so far. Uh, and so there, there are a lot of really exciting things that are happening. And then we talk about uh, Dr. Pam Silver's work making bacteria that can sort of go through your gut and report what they saw. And that seems very exciting. And she recently came up with a system where you can uh, couple to that bacteria a system that responds to what it finds in there. So you could have bacteria that go through your gut, find that maybe you have an ulcer, and fix it while they're in there. And then come out the other end glowing to let you know that they did some work <laughs> to let you know you had an ulcer. Uh, that's not actually something she's worked on in particular. But, like, yeah, I, I find this stuff amazing and inspiring. And the idea that, like, you know, the side effects of drugs could go away because they're not well, could be limited because the drugs aren't taken in large doses and then acting on parts of your body where they shouldn't. They could be delivered to precise places by these bacteria. That's really exciting to me in smaller doses that act just locally where the problem is. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, the stuff that they're working on right now. And 3D printed muffins. Let's oh, yeah. not forget those. Thank God. <laughs> your, your 10 billion pound muffin. <laughs> well, that, that's another... Something, when you were talking, for instance, about the creation of synthetic organs using other creatures, now that, to me, was an intriguing thing. Again, our ability, how well can we predict what may go wrong? That's part of what you deal with in the book. So you talk, for instance, that there may well, we may be able to make a synthetic organ, we may be able to use it with a pig, and then the next thing you know, go, oh, we've given ourselves a disease we didn't even know that pigs had. And something that in, in a pig is barely noticeable, but in us, this has huge ramifications. So in terms of how do you feel, having researched this book, in terms of our ability to uh, be able to examine the myriad possibilities of where things go wrong? I don't feel great all the time. So I, <laughs> I, I feel like for a lot of these things, it's incredibly important that the initial stages where the research is being done, it gets done under very controlled in, you know, conditions. Like you try the pig organ in a baboon over you know, many, 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 many times, and you see what goes wrong. And that will not necessarily tell you that nothing will go wrong in a human, but you at least are starting to get a handle on these things. And for a lot of these technologies, if you don't move them out the door too quickly and you do adequate testing you can probably catch most of the problems. Uh, I think it's also important to get people talking about potential problems way before those problems might be uh, encountered by the general population. And so one of the things that was a bit uh, depressing about doing the interviews for this book was that I would ask scientists, how do you think that your technology could really be bad for society? And I very often got the answer, I haven't, I haven't really thought about that. And, mm -hmm. and maybe they were just telling me that because they don't, didn't want a negative slant on the technology in the book. But I felt like they should have an answer to that, mm. and you should think about it. And I know these people aren't trained as bioethicists. That's a whole different field. You can get your own PhD in it. Like Those are people who should be thinking about it, but there should be some communication between those fields. Uh, and so I, I don't think that at the moment we do an adequate job of thoroughly thinking through all the potential negative implications. Uh, but what's exciting is that for CRISPR, uh, for example, Dr. Jennifer 
Doudna, I always say her name incorrectly, uh, um, has been like working on getting conferences to get people to talk about the problems and figure out what kind of legislation we should have to control this technology as it comes out. But not every country is having that conversation. And so they're coming up with different rules. Uh, and that's a little scary as you start to apply these sorts of tech gene editing technologies uh, that could get passed from generation to generation. So I guess the, the short answer is I'm a little nervous yeah. that we don't always do a good enough job on that. Uh, but but I'm hoping that we get better. Uh, yeah. Just a little thing. So the, the thing is, um, it's worth thinking in terms of trade-offs, right? So it, there's a risk of introducing a disease, but there is a, a very clearly known risk that, you know, 30,000 people will die of not getting an organ on time. So it's it's not like nothing happens if we don't do it. So so there's a little extra impetus to, to take on some risk, I think, uh, because we know people are going to be in pain or, or die. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe what we need is to return to those old days where someone would just say, uh, I asked my uh, maid son if he would drink this pus. <laughs> and it turns out it worked. I cured him. Don't mention the other children of the maids. They're all dead. But then, I mean, there are some, you know, at that point, they're incredible. And I think for exactly the reasons you're saying, yeah. you know, that, that those uh, medical pioneers were inspired because they wanted to save lives. But yeah. they took some risks. And very often it's not their children. It's, no, yeah. it's, it's convenient that their child didn't have the problem they were trying yes. to solve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th I think there's a there's a sort of very strictly consequentialist argument you could make. I, I, there are a couple economists, probably all American, who who say, well, maybe we shouldn't have uh, a drug administration to check these things because over time it'll end up better. But I think most of us are not super cool with that idea. It's uh, There's something ethically uncomfortable about trading this life for that one, you know. And then you do also have the problem, as you said, it's private money and very often, you know, there's... yeah pioneers who just go yeah that's going to work well on the market the um the robot side of things i find particularly interesting because in a lot of people when it comes to the idea of self-driving cars uh there's something a little bit like toilet doors on on trains which just slide shut and you press a button that locks people still haven't got used to the fact that they go they sometimes they add levers to make you <laughs> feel that you've done a thing there's certain designs are oh no it's okay i heard a sound that went click and the lever little they know the lever's really just a little button yeah. but you felt like you and and people seemed quite paranoid as well about the, however many car accidents we have every single month a robot car accident, as they might look at it, is terrifying. And yet, in your book, you then say the idea of people seem, even if they know a robot is malfunctioning in a situation that is going wrong, uh, they will still follow the robot and think, well, it is a robot. It now, this was, so <laughs> this was something, a bit of human psychology I'd never come across before, which was, despite our apparent lack of trust for the robot, you, it appears that research suggests that if we see a robot going in the what we believe is meant to be the emergency exit direction, we follow the robot as opposed to our instincts. Do, do you want me to tell that story? Yeah, it's yeah, a great it's story. a great, it's fascinating. <laughs> so uh, this was a PhD research done by Paul Robinette at Georgia Tech University, uh, and what Georgia he Institute of Technology. thank you, Georgia Institute of Technology. Um, and essentially, what he did was he had a robot that he called an emergency robot, and he had undergrads come in to do a survey. And they followed the robot to the room where they were supposed to do the survey. So for the first group of students, the robot went where it was supposed to go. They did the survey. And then the, the researchers released smoke into a hallway, which set off some fire alarms. And then the students could either leave through the hallway and the door through which they had just come. So they knew how to get out of this building or they could follow the robot. And they 
followed the many of them followed the robot. Uh, and what surprised us about this initial study was that if you watch the video of the robot, this robot is moving very slowly. <laughs> and, they, and they know how to get out, but instead they're like taking these tiny baby steps to keep behind the robot as it slowly moves forward. So the next thing he did to up the ante a little bit was first he had the robot go to an incorrect room and circle the incorrect room before going into the right room for the survey. And so not only now is the robot slow, but it also, they see, make er- makes errors. And still, most of the undergrads followed the robot when they let the smoke in and they set off the alarms. And then follow, finally, to, to really push the buttons, uh, they had, oh no, there's two more. They had the robot go into a corner and point at the corner. And a researcher came out and said, I'm sorry, this robot is broken. Here is where you need to go to do the survey. And then the robot came into the survey room. And when the smoke alarm went off, a bunch of the students still followed the robot. Instead of going out the door that they knew how to get out of, they instead followed this slow robot that they had just been told was broken. And then the final thing that they did was they had the robot, uh, after the fire alarm went off, go to a room that was blocked by a couch, had no exit signs, and the lights in the room were off, and the robot kept pointing into the room, like, this is where you go in the emergency. Uh, And two students had to be retrieved. They were apparently (laughs) waiting for death to come and just would not go out on their own. I think it was like six students. Two of them stood there for like five minutes and then eventually went out the door. Two of them went out the door much sooner and two had to be retrieved or something like that. So so we do have a surprising amount of trust for these students. And these these are not foolish people. These are like very clever, smart people to get into the Georgia Institute of Technology. And yet still they follow the robot, which begs the question, how many of us would follow the robot? And it it might be more of us than we would have imagined. So this is the Milgram test for the 21st century, isn't it? We we all imagine when we see it that we would certainly not have been the ones who followed the robot. Right. And then we go, oh, Uh, now I'm dead. Yeah, Yeah, right. We could be in a lot of trouble. What were the, when you were, I, I don't, actually, one thing in terms of how you work together, how, in terms of texts and cartoons, how do the, when you, when you sit down together, how, how do you, you work out that, that relationship? Either. So, um, we, the basically, we, we sort of each assigned each other chapters to do most of the work for, and so we both did research, and we kind of added the jokes right at the end, um, so occasionally we thought of something while writing it and we stuck it in, but mostly it was kind of just going through and seeing where we needed a little bit of a lift, um, and where we weren't talking about cancer or something. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, mostly we just researched a lot and talked a lot and, and wrote together. And what is, uh, in, what did you, when you were doing the, the, the research, uh, was there a point where, are there a few chapters where you went, I really hope that was going to be a chapter in the book, but I've done the research now, and it turns out, we are so far off. I mean, I imagine oh that <laughs> happened on more than one occasion. It, it did. So we, we have, uh, at the end, at least four examples in the graveyard of lost chapters of things that we researched for a long time and they didn't end up staying. So Zach uh, was tasked with doing the initial research on quantum computing and spent a month doing two months doing quantum computing research wrote a draft that was as long as most of the chapters in the book and the draft had only just introduced most of the technology we hadn't even got to like negative or positive implications and it was clear that it was it was not going to work it was too thick to explain it adequately was going to require you know 20 more pages and so we just we dropped that Uh, and then we also dropped some chapters like advanced prosthetic advanced prosthetics got dropped and that got dropped because it was fascinating, but it was a it was sort of a subsection. It seemed to us uh, of brain computer interfaces because the really good advanced prosthetics sort of talk to and communicate with your brain uh, and respond to that. And so we felt like it was too similar. So some stuff got dumped. We actually had a whole chapter on advanced nuclear reactors. 
uh, that at the last moment we were told we probably shouldn't make the book that long. So we had to drop a chapter. Uh, and we felt like that one, that technology was actually so, that technology was actually so close that we were mostly just talking about like slight differences between current reactor designs, which we thought is not, we felt is not as exciting to convey to people. So if the technology is like somewhere, it's not just starting because then you can't really be sure that the idea isn't just crazy, which is interesting, but probably not super close on the horizon. Uh, and if it's too far along, then it's just details that need to get mm. figured out. That's less exciting. So we tried to find sweet spots where mm. people had been working far enough that it was clear that there were like three or four problems that still needed to be solved in order for the technology to you know, come to fruition, uh, but not so far advanced that it was just details. See, on on the prosthetic limbs, I, I was out doing a show called Generator uh, in Toronto with Chris Hadfield, and there's some fantastic 3D printed, I'm sure you've seen them, kids who have, uh, basically they 3D print the uh, prosthetic hands, uh, they're not quite as strong, but they're still strong enough. And they can choose what the hand they have. Have you seen this stuff? Yeah. It, yeah. It's so, and they've got, they've got Iron Man's hand. They've got Luke Skywalker's Empire Strikes Back, second half hand. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of that. St- and it's a really, th- that, when you see the footage and the excitement yep. of not, you know, both the children and the scientists. Oh, it's amazing. And, and some, of, some of the hands that they're working on now can even tell the brain, like, this surface is textured. And so, like, if you run your finger along a surface, it, even though it's, you know, a prosthetic hand, it kind of feels, you know, your brain is being told, oh, this surface is bumpy versus this surface is smooth. And that's, like, an amazing thing to be able to communicate to your brain. And so these prosthetics are getting so good that they can start giving that kind of information. Uh, and you have all this customizability where you can go out with, walk, or, you know, Luke Skywalker's <laughs> hand or Iron Man's hand. It's, it's really exciting. What is the, in terms of your own childhood, when you first maybe got into science fiction, what is the one thing you go, oh, I really thought that was going to exist by now? And looking back, you think that's what happens when you're 10 and you read some of these things. (laughs) I thought we weren't going to have cancer anymore, which was maybe a very foolish childhood uh, (laughs) thing. But, but, you know, I, I felt like I kept hearing about advances that were made to to cancer research. And I, I thought we would, you know, maybe be on the verge of getting rid of cancer and Maybe that will never happen. I don't, I've talked to some scientists who think that we're going to get to a point where you can just control cancer when you have it and you can control it until you pass away and it just won't be something that kills you anymore, uh, which is not curing cancer, but at least you have a nice long lifespan. But anyway, it turns out we're, we're not where, we, where I thought we would be with cancer when I was a kid. But kids are stupid. It's a pretty boring kid. You're like, I hope we'll have better medical treatements by the time. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I, I wanted stuff in Star Wars to be real, which was a bad place to place your bets because it most of it already doesn't make physics and so it just wasn't going to happen anyway like lasers are totally disappointing you know for combat uh they don't like shoot flaming bolts at, at, at the enemy but uh yeah the space stuff as you say is a bit disappointing um uh but i mean partially partly it's it's disappointing because we decided maybe we shouldn't have nuclear reactors in space and it's 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 a little hard to disagree with that uh, at least for the moment so that was something that I found very... I was at the Big Bang Fair on Thursday, which is a, a big event in Birmingham where loads of kids, loads of schools, lots of different kind of companies and organisations showing things. And just chatting to a 12-year-old about his excitement over nuclear fusion. And he was he was up for a uh, a, a prize because he'd written a piece about trying to explain, as you do in the book, trying to explain that our ideas, the moment you place nuclear... You know, oh, we remember that Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, yeah, that kind of yeah. thing, and it was fantastic to see a twelve. I mean, that was the great thing, which is you see these kids who are winning prizes for coming up with the idea of uh, not using. Of course, you talk about turning, uh, you know, 
excrement, etc., in, into space food. But they had turned <laughs> wa- they turned waste food into vitamin pills. They found ways of using basil plants to reduce malaria. And it's mm-hmm. you know, and that that is the bit where you go. They do seem a really this, there's a couple of generations of people who. Mm-hmm got a hold on ideas like, like things like dark energy you hear a kid talk about why there's no way we're ever really going to understand dark energy and you go this is you're 12 <laughs> this is cool yeah when, when so we were scrolling through the list of uh iGEM uh projects iGEM is the international genetically engineered mm-hmm. microorganism some something along those lines but it's, it's held in boston every year and essentially they're supposed to genetically modify some organism to do something awesome and it's high school students and in some cases younger i think and undergrads and they're coming up with like bacteria or you know little like strips that can detect date rape drugs in your drinks or uh they can detect the quality of heroin and so that people won't overdose or something and just it's a you're like you're in high school there's no way i would have understood this at, at your age and you're already modifying these organisms and sharing that information on a database so someone else can do the same thing so you know students have access to unprecedented amounts of information and tools these days they're doing really cool things with them um it's, we've kind of touched on it a little bit but information asymmetry the issue of that can we just go back a little bit about that that problem where you know how how do we how do we tackle information asymmetry yeah it's this really interesting thing that's happened where if you go back to um the early days of the internet there was this idea that it would democratize information um but the problem is we don't all have access to fancy algorithms and supercomputers so actually google of course knows a lot more about you than you know about them and it's probably just in the nature of things, whoever has more money has more access to computation and storage, and, and, and it creates this problem. Uh, and so, you know, one, one simple case we talk about is, like, if you're at the office, your boss knows a lot or might be able to know a lot more about you than you know about them. That might be by contract or uh, in some sort of you know, future dystopian scenario. Um, so one of the chapters we talk about is about um, brain-computer interfaces. Uh, where it's what it sounds like, you know, your brain interfaces with a computer. And in one book we read, there was this idea proposed, and I think it was meant to be, it it would be a cool idea, which was suppose you have a worker and their focus lapses. A machine could detect that and report it to the boss, uh, which to me is a nightmare. To to be fair to that idea, it it makes sense if you're like a jet pilot. You might want that being reported. But like, you know, the idea that you're working in a cubicle and your laps, you know, you check Facebook a minute and that somehow gets reported to your boss, that's a terrifying future. Um... And and then it becomes unclear the extent to which people could opt out of having those brain-computer mm-hmm. interfaces because once some people have it, if they end up being way ahead and way more productive, uh, then that makes other people want to get it. Now you end up with this sort of race where more and more people are trying to get it and then more and more people potentially can't afford it. And then you end up with this you know, more mm-hmm. enhanced asymmetry between those can af- who can afford to have these brain-computer interfaces that make them focus better and those that can't. And I don't know, these things get uncomfortable pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, anyway, soonish is, I, I, we haven't got the bucket of slime. The, uh, there's, so, there's so many. Uh, I, I wanted to know more about nostril-based exam performance as well. <laughs> and the, and the, actually, that was another one that I found. There's, there's a few things in that which, which I always love those moments of evolutionary conjecture where we don't know, but we're going. Skin wrinkling in water. I'd never heard this before. I'd never known about one of the theories of why our, our fingers wrinkle is because it means that the advantage of improving the grip in damp conditions. That's great. Yeah. Hey, it's amazing. You read the paper. It even happened, or it doesn't happen. It does. Like, yeah, it doesn't happen when you. I think it's when you sever the connection to the brain from the. It's like people who have, have lost connection to a to their their hand. It doesn't do the wrinkling thing. I believe that's correct, right? Yeah. Which. Yeah. 
We, we, yeah, which really suggests that that evolutionary ex explanation is, is pretty solid. But of course, there could be some other thing we're not thinking about. But yeah, yeah we yeah. we it was hard to not put all of the cool stuff that we came across while researching yeah. it uh, in this book. But that's why we ended up having nota benes because there were some things we were like, "This is way too awesome. We just have to <laughs> we have to put something about how you only use one nostril at a time in the book." Pete. Yeah. So anyway, we we have lots of sections with sort of weird stuff we came yeah. across. Well, that's what here. I think's fun about it is is that there's the the kind of the the basic science, the harder science, and then there's and this shoots off in all these directions yeah. and they yeah it's an editing nightmare i imagine oh my god <laughs> our editor was amazing though she, was, <laughs> she kept up it yeah. was yeah it was good well soon as she's out now is it coming out in paperback in the uk soon as well it's in hardback at the moment i think they just printed more hardback great so i'm yeah. not sure when the paperback is coming well out. buy it in hardback thanks very yes, much good yeah. thank you thank you it was a lot of fun yeah there's loads of things that i wanted to uh yeah. Gone about. Yeah. It was so much fun researching. Yeah, there's so Watch many. Uh, ones, so yeah. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm -hmm.